Kia ora and welcome to my chorus, a daily podcast I put out through uh, an email newsletter uh, via the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. Today I wanted to talk about what's happening in the climate, in housing and in uh, poverty reduction. And I've got one on each of those. Often these things revolve around housing. I'm one of those people who deploy the housing theory of everything. Because sadly, in Aotearoa, it's true. We are a housing market with bits tacked on rather than an economy or a polity or even a society. So much of what goes wrong, what goes right, where we could fix things revolves around housing. And when you want to solve a housing problem by having a lot more houses, and particularly affordable houses, one of the key things to get right is water. Because you can't really have a new home without a connection to some drinking water, to a sewerage system, and to be able to deal with the water that arrives when it rains, which it seems to have done a lot lately. And so water, water networks, the three waters, are so important when it comes to solving not just our issues around a lack of housing, but also solving our issues around climate change and also water quality. Because to deal with these issues, you need to ensure that you have the pipes in the ground, that they're in the right place, that they connect up with your transport networks, and that they're maintained. And all of this costs an enormous amount of money. And it turns out the most effective way to build these things and to maintain these things is with publicly owned organisations and publicly controlled organisations. Because unlike a, a lot of other product and service markets, you don't really have a choice. You can't decide to connect up to someone else's pipes apart from actually leaving the city completely. And that's why it's one of those so-called network monopolies that have to be regulated. And, and the government, be it councils or the central government, have to get involved, either as a, a regulator of pretty much everything, including price and quality and volume, or actually owning it. And uh, voters, ratepayers, taxpayers, expressing their opinions through ownership of these assets and through investing in these assets. We know that we have a problem though. Our water quality up and down the country is not as good as it should be. Not just for drinking water, we all know about the Havelock North disaster, but also of course stormwater and those who are trying to swim at Auckland's beaches know exactly how much of a problem this is not to mention the issues we have with water through most of our cities um, running off and creating all sorts of greeblies and awfulness in our galleys and streams and harbours. And all of these issues are exacerbated by very high population growth, which we have seen for the last 20 years. Unfortunately, in an undiscussed unagreed, unplanned for, uninvested way. In today's news, 
We learnt that the likely infrastructure minister, Chris Bishop, he's been the infrastructure spokesman for National and and their leader on all things Three Waters, has come out and said that if a council either can't or won't invest in the new water infrastructure needed to fund new houses or to improve the quality, then those assets need to go off balance sheet. This sounds remarkably like three waters. Uh, now, obviously, National are not keen on the idea of, th- of co-governance or so much on the idea of compulsion, which is what three waters was. And remember, those three entities have been legislated and are now in existence. Not completely there yet, but they're uh, being embedded as we speak with the employment of various executives, the creation of offices and the transfer of assets. It's not done completely though yet and the assumption is that when the government is formed that National Act at least probably New Zealand First 2 will get round to repealing either all or parts of the Three Waters legislation. The question though remains and the problem remains how do we ensure we have good enough water networks not just to be able to drink healthily and swim healthily, but also to build lots of new homes around either beefed up networks or new networks. Because we're not building those either. And we know that's true because we simply haven't built enough homes in the last 20 years to cope with the population growth we've had. And this week we've got more detail on that. Building approval numbers reported yesterday show that there were just 17,000 or so homes consented last year in Auckland. And that is at the same time that Auckland's population rose by 48,000. So we're talking around three people per home. Now you might argue, well that sounds about right, that doesn't sound very overcrowded. But of course many of those 17,000 homes are actually not net new homes. Because for every house that gets bowled and replaced by three townhouses, that's a net two new dwellings. And of course a lot of those townhouses, which may have three or four bedrooms, are not occupied all the time and uh, may only be occupied by one or two people. So this is one of the issues here. We have a massive overcrowding issue and a rising number of people living in each particular home, particularly once you take out the homes that are not lived in permanently. Uh, They might be a holiday home or a second home or some sort of Airbnb. So we don't have enough new homes and that's in part because there's been a lack of investment and infrastructure to deal with that. In today's email I talk about how National is approaching this issue of finding the funding to solve the problem. For a long time, both Labour and National have essentially engaged in magical thinking. They've proposed and promised that they could solve these issues of building the expensive water infrastructure at the same time as not putting up taxes or not putting in water charges and not having higher public debts to pay for it. The implication, and sometimes the action, has been to Uh, bring in so-called private funding. One of the most popular ones is public-private partnerships. This is where uh, a private body, often backed by a bank, 
will promise to build, let's say, a motorway and own it for 20 or 30 years or so and uh, ask for a certain fee per year in exchange for uh, owning, building, running it. And then in the end, handing it over. It's a bit like leasing a car from someone and at the end you either have to pay for the value of the depreciated value of the car or maybe you just get the car handed over to you because you've paid so much money in the long run. Now this all comes down to some fancy financial engineering that's largely about the interest rate that's charged. And typically the interest rate that's charged on the borrowing and the equity uh, invested in these uh, uh, projects is much, much higher when you have a public-private partnership. Because one of the beauties of governments, both central and local, is that they have the legislated power to tax. This is unlike any other body. If you're a bank even, or if you are a large company, you can't compel people to pay you money. Uh, you can certainly have a dominant market share, and you can be very good at what you do, but in the long run, you don't, you don't have the ability to pass a law to make people give you cash. So this is the beauty of being a government. You can go to a ratings agency and to a lender and say, I am able to pass a law to get people to pay me money. Essentially, I grow and have the cash available when the economy runs. So that means central governments in particular, and often councils, have better credit, rate, credit ratings than just about anyone else. They are lower risk, which means they can afford lower interest rates. In fact, uh, the government bond of any government is pretty much seen as the safest asset in that country. And that's why New Zealand has a double A plus credit rating from Standard & Poor's, a triple A rating from Moody's, and from memory, a triple A rating from Fitch. We also have a bunch of councils who have very strong credit ratings, double A plus for Auckland from Moody's, uh, essentially one notch below the sovereign credit rating. And this is because councils not only have the power to charge rates and uh, um, fees and various other things, but also they are seen by ratings agencies as effectively backed by the government. That's partly because they often borrow through a thing called the Local Government Funding Agency, which is again one of these things guaranteed by the central government. So that's where the central government is able to set rules for councils about how much they can borrow, in part because if the councils uh, go nuts and uh, see their credit ratings downgraded, if enough of them do it and the wrong ones do it, in particular Auckland, that could hurt New Zealand's sovereign credit rating, which of course would mean a higher borrowing cost for everyone, all other things being equal. So this issue of how you pay for public infrastructure, in particular water infrastructure, is bound up in the interest rate that you have to pay on the debt that goes with these assets. Now these interest rates, the credit rating essentially, is a function of how bond investors, i.e. pension funds, banks, see these instruments, these securities, and often they depend on ratings agencies to tell them how safe something is. So when you make a decision or have a plan to invest in water infrastructure, you often have to get the permission 
and inform and involve the ratings agencies. That's why Three Waters has as much been a debate about the structure and the ownership and the control of assets and the various guarantees for those assets provided to credit ratings agencies as as much as it's been about co-governance and all the other things that you might have heard about in public. Essentially, Labour was trying to solve a problem of not wanting to increase the central government's debt, knowing that councils couldn't increase their own debt without lowering their own credit ratings. And so the government, the Labour government, was trying to solve this issue by creating brand new bodies which had all these assets and was able to uh, uh, provide some sort of guarantee to the investors that they would get repaid, but also not hand over control of the assets to a private uh, enterprise or a foreign investor. These would still be publicly owned assets, but not directly owned either by councils or by the government. Why? Because ratings agencies get a little nervous when local councils uh, own and control assets and make decisions about investments. They also get a little nervous when central governments do as well, because often central governments and councils underinvest in the assets and quite like to cut taxes and um, put some of the risks back onto the bond investors. What ratings agencies would like is for a completely independent entity to own the assets and have the ability to charge for the use of those assets with things like water charges. And this is where Three Waters gets very interesting because one of the main problems that councils have had is the inability in most places to bring in water meters and water charges. Often it very quickly becomes a political issue and a, an issue for debate at elections. And often, whenever a candidate has argued for water meters and water charges, they've either failed to get in, or if they did it while they were in, they get kicked out. And there's various examples of that. The Kapiti Coast District Council, for example, uh, um, managed to get water meters in and charges in, but it cost that council its uh, cost the council re-election. They didn't get elected again. Uh, And in various places, there have been intense debates and campaigns. Hamilton, for example, Christchurch, Wellington, uh, do not have uh, water charges. And ratings agencies want them. And in essence, they're probably the best way to fund these sorts of infrastructure. A, it's a reliable source of revenue to pay for the debt. B, when you have charges on water, it's remarkable how quickly people fix the, the leaks because they know that if they can fix a leak, they're not going to have to pay for the water. And it's been very effective in places where there have been water charges imposed. Now, often it has to be imposed from somewhere else onto the ratepayers because they never agree to it to start with. That's the story of Auckland, which now has water charges via water care uh, because essentially this was forced on Auckland from the centre in 2011-12 with the creation of the super city by the then national government. And uh, in Tauranga, where 
eventually you got water charges, but only after the council was essentially removed by the central government and replaced by commissioners. Uh, uh, Kapiti is one of the exceptions, but uh, there are no water charges in any great, um, uh, to any great or compulsory extent in the likes of Christchurch, Wellington. And these are places where, particularly Wellington, which wasn't the beneficiary of a lot of investment uh, to repair damage after the earthquake, Wellington has a huge issue. $2 billion worth of work needs to be done. Every five minutes, you seem to see a report of a pipe that's gone uh, uh, bust and is squirting all over the place. Uh, uh, outages of pipes, um, sewage going into the harbour. And of course, in Auckland, the most prominent recent example is the collapse of a pipe in Parnell, which meant that there's been a rahui on the Auckland Harbour uh, for more than a month. Uh, this is a constant issue. How do we fund infrastructure when ratepayers and voters don't want higher taxes or water charges, which they often see as a tax? And there are ways you can solve this problem. A, you can just stop your population growing and you can also make sure you maintain your networks. Unfortunately, because they're underground, out of sight, out of mind, often it's the, the thing that gets dropped first when your budget is under pressure or you want to avoid a rates increase. And that's fine because uh, usually things don't break or they break after 40 or 50 years. And when you make that decision, you can hope that it doesn't break on your watch. And so we've ended up in this situation where politicians have said, yes, you can have clean water. Uh, uh, yes, you can do it without a rate increase or a new set of water charges or a new tax. And we'll do it by shuffling the debt off the balance sheet and doing it that way. Uh, knowing, of course, that once you give complete control of the assets to someone who's not on a council or a government, who's effectively a technocrat, there will be charges. And then the aim, of course, of politicians is to blame the technocrats. Now, um, in the long run, that's effectively uh, um, not taking responsibility for the basic issue. And here's the basic issue. It's what I call the impossible trinity. I take this idea actually from uh, economists who think a lot about foreign exchange and uh, a nation's capital accounts and capital flows. In the days when exchange rates were fixed, and of course many countries still have fixed exchange rates, and New Zealand used to have a fixed exchange rate up until the mid-80s, uh, you couldn't have a fixed exchange rate and have an open capital account uh, at the same time as having uh, a stable uh, uh, economy. Because often what happens when you grew your economy too fast, you'd pull in a lot of imports. And if you weren't growing your exports fast enough, you'd soon build up a trade deficit and a current account deficit, and there would be enormous pressure on your foreign reserves. So the idea of the impossible trinity is that you can't have a... Uh, an open capital account and a free-floating currency at the same time as uh, uh, having a, an independent um, or having a politically set interest rate. 
essentially you've you've got to have all three at the same time. You can't have two out of the three going. That's the uh, impossible trinity. And it's like that with our infrastructure. So uh, you can't have low taxes and low debt at the same time as high population growth. What you can, it just means that very quickly you run out of space, you don't have enough room for houses, your house prices and your rents go up, uh, you start to, uh, your pipes start to break and essentially you stress your infrastructure to the point, to the breaking point and it becomes very uncomfortable and not a nice place to live. You could argue we're sort of there already. Uh, uh, because we have very fast population growth but it's unfunded and unplanned. Essentially, for the last 20 or 30 years, we've assumed that our population wouldn't grow much at all, or at best 0.5%. That's what we've been, uh, what's been projected by StatsNZ, in part because we have this idea that uh, migration is not there to grow the population, it's there to temporarily solve some labour issues. So often we'd bring in a, a temporary worker on a three-year visa, with the assumption that they were there just to fill a hole until we could generate enough of our own people. And then they could go away again. And because they're not here permanently, there's not quite the same demand to build a hospital to deal with them when they get sick or to um, have a welfare system to deal with them or to ensure there are enough on motorways and railways and buses because the assumption is they're not really full humans participating in society. They're sort of off on the edges and the fringes and they can go away. But of course they don't. As we saw uh, during COVID when 200,000 people on temporary work visas were granted permanent residency and now in the last year we've had 110,000 people arrive net uh, on mostly on temporary work visas. With the assumption and the pretend pretension that these are temporary workers and that's how we get away with saying to ourselves and everyone else well we actually are not a fast growing population it's just this year it happens to be fast uh, and next year we'll go back to normal well we know that's not the case for 20 years we've been growing at one and a half to two percent which is amongst the fastest rates in the developed world but we haven't done the infrastructure to go with it so what i'm saying here is that you can't have very fast population growth with low taxes and low debt. Either you drop the population growth and keep the low taxes and the low debt, or you have the population growth and you increase your taxes. And when I say taxes, that also includes things like congestion charges, water charges, which are seen as taxes, and higher debt. Because at the moment, for 30 years, we've run a 30-30 policy. Keep your size of government below 30%, which means have relatively low income taxes, use a GST, don't have a capital gains tax, don't have a wealth tax, and keep the size of government balanced, uh, running surpluses or very small deficits through that period to keep your net debt for a long period below 20% of GDP in gross terms and now below 30% of GDP in net terms. That only makes sense when you have population growth of 0.5% or less. What I'm arguing for is to have a proper conversation about our population growth. I personally would like to see quite strong population growth, in part because that at least is being honest with ourselves. That's what we've ended up with anyway. And certainly over the next 50 to 60 years, we're going to have very strong population growth, if only because we are a more livable place to be as the climate cooks itself after we've inserted a lot of 
carbon emissions and methane and various other uh, emissions. And 100 million rich people will want to come here from North and South Asia and they'll be wealthy and able to pay their way. And they're coming on a plane, probably. And we were seen as one of the best places to be in this sort of extremely volatile, painful period because our moat is bigger than anyone else's. You literally cannot jump on a small boat and come to New Zealand, as people are doing through the Mediterranean and across the English Channel and all sorts of other channels around the world and borders and across rivers and the likes. We're special. And that means we are going to have fast population growth. And when you put a 2% population growth into a spreadsheet for a country with just over 5 million people, you end up with 17 to 20 million people by the end of the century. That means probably 10 to 15 million people in and around Auckland. Now, I'm never going to get elected by promising or suggesting that is what is going to happen, but that is what is going to happen. So that means you have to really think about your population growth and making sure that it is in line with your planning for your infrastructure, which it is not. And the point of my article here, and you can see more detail with the email, is that we have been kidding ourselves for decades. And the latest game of Twister that National is playing in the same way that Labour is playing it is no solution. We actually need to have a proper conversation and debate and plan about our population growth that matches our tax levels and our debt levels. And we should stop trying to invent a magic pudding to make it go away. Secondly, I wanted to look at the cost of living and the role of our monopolies and duopolies in that. Because we've got a good example this week of what happens when you don't crack down and stop the development of duopolies and monopolies, and once they're there, you don't do anything about them. This week, SUPI, S-U-P-I-E, an online uh, supermarket, failed. And one of the reasons it failed is it couldn't get the products to sell to its customers, uh, even though the new groceries commissioner, a body set up after a market study by the Commerce Commission, uh, has said to all of the major suppliers and supermarkets that they should ensure that their products are available at reasonable similar prices in a wholesale way to other competitors. Turns out they've been <laughs> ignoring that, the big suppliers. And we have some names now. According to Sarah Ball, who was the founder of Supi, as reported by Newsroom, we are seeing that companies like Fonterra, SC Johnson, and Mars have, and Tatua, have said, no, we're not going to supply Supi. Uh, we don't want to offer the same low, low price to the smaller retailers as we do to the big ones. And no doubt the big retailers are going, great, we don't want a bunch of free riders getting the cheap deals that we get. Uh, otherwise, they might compete with us. And so here we go again. And uh, ironically, this happened, the failure of Supi, on the same day the groceries commissioner, Pierre Van Heerden, came out and said that one of his roles is to wag his finger 
aggressively at the supermarket sector and there's a big suppliers to make them or suggest that they uh, offer their products at the right prices to everyone. And here we have the guts of the matter. How do you get monopolies to do the right thing when it's against their financial interests to do it? Well, in the end, you have to regulate and legislate. Simply suggesting they do it and asking them to do it nicely is not going to work, and we've seen that this week. Finally, I wanted to point out a Treasury analysis that came out in early September when we were looking elsewhere, (laughs) particularly at the election, and which shows that the cost of our failure to cut emissions could be as high as $25.948 billion, so $26 billion by 2030, our failure to meet our Paris agreements. So the most recent changes in our policies means that we're looking at a shortfall of 114.12 megatons, according to a Ministry for the Environment analysis of the current trajectory for our emissions after the bonfire of the climate policies. And that um, if we have a carbon price to buy these emissions credits on international markets, it's likely that it could be as high as 243 New Zealand dollars a tonne. And that would cost $26 billion. Now that is more more than we spend on health in any one particular year. And this is an amount which is yet to be written in as a contingent liability in our books. Remember, if you're an accountant or an auditor, and we have a bunch of them who who crawl all over the Crown's accounts, they should be looking at something like this and saying, right, we made an agreement to reduce our emissions. We signed up to it. In theory, both parties have signed up to it, and eventually we got National to agree to it in the end during the election campaign. However, on concurrent trajectories, there's going to be a bill of $26 billion, and neither of the main parties have either got the permission or talked about it with taxpayers, particularly the scale of it, and Treasury have not written it into their accounts. Why not? Well, I think they should. Because once it's in those accounts as a contingent liability, it's something the government has to manage and think about. Now, the best way to do it is to reduce the emissions uh, uh, or um, be honest with the public and say, right, we're going to renege on our commitments under the Paris Agreement. That, of course, would be devastating for our international trading sector and a bunch of farmers who'd immediately be cut off from Europe. Because remember, the free trade agreement we did with the, you know, with, the, with the European Union included, in black letter, that we would abide by our Paris agreements on climate emissions. It's something I'll be coming back to regularly. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was a slightly longer and quite late um, uh, a chorus for today, Wednesday, the 1st of November. I hope it was worth the wait. I'm Bernard Hickey. Kakite anō.